you're asking from us is total surrender. And we know that it's a momentary thing. There's times where I want to hold on to my own will. And I'm praying for collectively for me, for us in this room, that constantly it's more of you and us working than it is us and us working. Because we know what comes out when it's us working. Usually nothing good. Nothing that you can church. It's my pleasure to be with you again this morning, and if you're a guest with us, man, we are so thankful that you would join us. Uh, We just love worshiping God and worshiping with other believers, and man, it's been a great morning of worship. Hopefully you were blessed by that. And now we're going to turn our attention to God's Word, and so if you have uh, your Bibles, would you take them out and turn them on or open them to Luke chapter 22. That's just to let those who use digital Bibles know that they're okay. It's a safe place in here. (laughs) If you've been here and this is your second week, uh, you've got to see me both weeks. And I promise you, if you come back next week, you will hear good preaching from Pastor Justin. (laughs) And uh, it is, uh, he has had opportunity uh, for the first time in several years to go visit his son in uh, Chicago and listen to him perform at Moody and uh, so he and Christina got to travel out there, and so you can be praying for them that they would just enjoy that time, and he'll be back in the pulpit next week. But I'm, I'm always thankful for the opportunity to be with you. We're studying a, a portion of Luke that should stir us, and I was just thinking as we were worshiping, we are headed now for a few weeks here. Uh, we're heading towards Easter, and what's going to be really exciting about uh, this progression in the book of Luke is that it has actually been kind of set up, and now we will actually land in Luke's account of the resurrection on Easter morning, and so we're building our way towards that, but to get to the glory of the resurrection and the hope that it brings, we have to walk through this portion of Luke, and and it's not an easy one to read as we look at Jesus being rejected from every angle. Last week, we saw that he was rejected by Uh, what we would probably consider his most loyal disciple, the one who pledged faithfulness to the very end, even willing to give up his own life, and yet in his own self-reliance did not have the strength to remain faithful to Christ. You know, there are a few things that annoy or aggravate or anger us more than injustice. I was thinking back this week of a time when I was a new parent, and my wife and I were at an outlet mall, with uh, our, our son, and, and we were kind of trying to do the, uh, the parenting thing, just trying to not let being uh, the parents of a young one stop us from getting out there and spending time together and, and, and enjoying uh, just being together. And so we were out shopping, and uh, we had fed our son lunch, and, and he uh, just, something didn't settle right, and so that lunch came back up. 
And so in kind of a mad rush, we were trying to find the nearest restroom in this place so that we could get in there and get him cleaned up and be able to move on with our day. And as we were, we were kind of, I was kind of frantic, a new young dad. I just, I wanted to get this taken care of as soon as I could. And so we were, we were going and, and as we found the restroom, as we were walking our way, our son again, he is just covered in his lunch. Uh, there were these three teenage boys who, as we were walking by, I heard one of them say, look at that kid, he threw up all over himself. And he and his buddy started laughing. And in that moment, I felt something for the first time as a father. Like, I, I felt rage. I don't know why I felt like that, but as I began to think through that and process through that, in that moment, it was because someone I loved was being ridiculed, was being mocked, was for something that he couldn't control. It wasn't like he purposely did that. He had done nothing wrong. And yet, to hear them mock and laugh at it, just it, it made me angry. As I read through this passage and as I think about what goes on in this passage and in this whole section of the book of Luke, I, I think it'd be really common for us to read it and to feel similar emotion. For those who love Jesus, for those of us who are so thankful for the gift of salvation, how could we read through this portion of the gospel account and not be upset, not be annoyed or agitated or angered by the treatment that they show Jesus, the disrespect for a person who had done nothing to them but call them out for their sin, who exposed their hypocrisy. And had they come to him, and in the moments where Jesus had told them that as religious leaders and, and as, as false followers, as if they would just acknowledge that and they would, ex they would admit their fault and come to him and repent, he would have gladly accepted them because that's what he, he was there for. He had come to seek and save the lost. And so as we're going to read through today's text, we're going to read about the second rejection he faced. Last week, he faced the rejection of his friend. This week, he's going to re receive the rejection of his own. The Jewish people, the leaders, are going to reject him. Next week, we're going to see him be rejected by the world, as Pastor Justin talks about his trials in front of the Roman officials. But I, as, I want, as we get set up for this morning, I want us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the narrative is going to be about all of the atrocities and the sinisterness of the people in this moment, these Jewish leaders. But as I was studying this week and as I was praying for, Lord, this is important for us to know because you've contained it in your word and we need to understand the story. We need to see each step along the way. You've, you've informed us so that we can understand what it cost to pay for my sin. I want us to also be aware that he did that for you. And that everything that is going to happen, even in this short text that we're going to read this morning, and all the things that he faced that he did not deserve, he did it joyfully for you and for me. He had us on his mind. And so while this should stir us and this should convict us, it should not discourage us because we know in the end he raised victorious. Amen? You know, our disdain for injustice only intensifies when those who are charged with the responsibility of maintaining or upholding justice are the ones who are practicing it, are the ones who are actually abusing it. 
uh, many stories we hear about different people who were in positions of authority uh, or positions of trust that who are uh, taking advantage of that, those things can upset us. And this morning, he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders of the Jewish people named the Sanhedrin. These leaders were the teachers and defenders of God's word. These were the people who, knowing the scriptures, should have been directing all the Jewish people to be looking along with them at the possibility that the Messiah was coming soon. They had been given the the Old Testament scriptures at this point. They knew the prophecies. They knew the things that would be indicators. It would be signs that the Messiah was there, that he was coming. And we should be looking forward to that. But when Jesus came and presented himself as the Christ, they rejected him. Jesus was heading to the cross alone. He predicted this. It wasn't a surprise to him. Uh, Earlier in Luke's account, in chapter 17, Jesus said that he would suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus knew that this was going to happen. But being fully man, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that that rejection was heavy. That rejection was hurtful. The same feelings that we would feel and experience to be rejected by people that should be for us, but then they turn to be against us. We have a beautiful picture of how we should respond when we face rejection unjustly in Christ. Peter's rejection last week was a revelation of his weakness. He thought his love and personal internal fortitude would be enough to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. And it was exposed as weakness. He relied on himself and he needed God's power to remain faithful. And we had that beautiful picture at the end of our text last week of in John, where Jesus restores Peter. But this week, the Jewish leader's rejection is going to reveal something else. And I think it's important for us to to learn from these men and to see what was going on inside their hearts, because I think there's a warning for us as believers. And I believe there's probably one or two conditions that we've come into church today. Uh, One is that uh, we maybe are in a state of unbelief. Maybe you're here and you've been invited by a friend, but you would say, I don't really believe in the Bible, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. I want you to give God the opportunity. Let his word speak to you this morning. But perhaps we've come in this morning, and even as a believer in God, we've started to get hardened in our heart. We've started to not trust God with everything. We we actually, if we were to do an internal kind of diagnostic where our heart sits right now, there'd be evidence of unbelief in our own hearts. We're going to talk about that as well. Because in these men, their, re- their rejection of Christ was the revelation of a deluded sense of intellectual sovereignty. They had an unbelieving heart. And as we mentioned last week, perceived natural strength can be a disadvantage especially in matters that are spiritual. And so let's read our text for this morning. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word, if you're able? And we will listen to the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one that hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, 
you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Do you believe this took place? It did. You may be seated. Father God, as we begin now to consider this text a little more closely, God, I pray that you would help us keep our eyes fixed, not only on the the sinful behavior, but that we be constantly fixed on your son, his faithfulness, his love demonstrated in the fact that he was still righteous in the face of injustice. And God, I pray that you'd help us observe the warning signs of an unbelieving heart. And if we have any of that in us today, that you would use this passage and this message to help us deal with that. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Our notes say this. The Jewish people of Jesus' day were justly proud of their system of jurisprudence, which was the most carefully constructed one in existence. It was in many respects even superior to our current system. Since God is a God of truth, truth was central to Israel's system of justice. From the very outset, God stressed to Israel how essential it was for all judges to be focused on the pursuit of truth. But in their murderous zeal to convict and execute Jesus, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin violated the lofty principles of fairness and meticulous concern for justice that marked the Jewish legal tradition. We've already seen in our study of Luke that these religious leaders were very, very concerned that anything that they were going to do with Jesus could not be done publicly because they could tell they weren't dull. They could see that Jesus' popularity was at an all-time high. Remember, just a few days earlier, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a colt to the praises of the people, and he had been spending this week leading up to the cross teaching every day in the temple He cleaned it out, he was teaching, he was serving, and his popularity was growing to an all-time high. And even for those who maybe didn't interact with Jesus, there was a buzz in the city because the city was full of people who had come there to, to take the Passover meal. They had made their trek to Jerusalem, and so buzz was around. People knew about Jesus, and the men, the religious leaders, had a plan, but they were very, very concerned that if they had done this publicly, if anyone were to catch wind of what their plan was, they were going to be held accountable, that the people would revolt against the Jewish leaders. See, their whole desire, and before we're too quick to judge the Pharisees and judge the Sadducees and and judge the scribes and judge the Sanhedrin, their whole desire was that God, uh, through Jesus here, would not rock their boat. They liked their power. They liked their prestige. They liked their income. They liked their position. They felt deserved of that. And Jesus was coming in, and what he was saying and what he was proposing was going to turn that upside down. It was going to expose their hypocrisy. It would potentially cause them to lose everything that they felt they deserved. And so they had to get rid of Jesus. They had to move this out because they did not want their lives to change. That potential still exists for every one of us in the room, that we want something more than Jesus. And if it comes down to having to give that up to obey, well, I'm going to give up Christ. I'm going to push him to the fringes of my life. 
I'm going to find a way to justify why he doesn't really want me to do that. He's okay with me doing what I want to do. And so the men, the Jewish leaders, with the help of Judas, construct this plan to arrest Jesus at nighttime, to arrest him outside of the city, to arrest him outside of the the gaze and the view of the general public. And they are in a hurry to get this trial underway. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, gives us a little insight to why they were in such a hurry to put Jesus on trial right then and there. Because you see, the Jews were operating, that the Jewish leaders had some authority, but it was actually under the authority of Rome. Rome was in charge of Jerusalem. Rome, though, you know, they didn't want to, they would come in and they would start to tax people, and they were, they were the ones in charge, but they did, had a history of not wanting necessarily just to turn over civilizations and cultures. And so if the culture would still serve Rome and obey Rome, they would still let you have a little bit of authority. And so... The Jews had worked hard to do this, but they did not have the authority to carry out the death penalty. Rome had to do that. And their hope was to find Jesus guilty through a set of trials and and questioning during the night so that when the morning came, they could hand him over, having decided for themselves that he was worthy of death, and hand him over to the Roman officials in the morning because that's when they would meet. That's when they would hear cases, and so they had to have him ready. They could not wait because the Sabbath was coming, and if they, now they had Jesus in custody, and if for some reason they couldn't deliver him over to the Romans, and they couldn't convict him of death, and couldn't put him on that cross, he would remain in custody for a few days. Remember Jesus' popularity. People would notice Jesus, what happened to Jesus. And, and it would start to, again, think their plan would start to unravel. And so their hope was to eliminate that risk. And so Luke tells us last week in verse 54 that they had arrested him, Jesus, in Gethsemane, and they led him to the house of the high priest at the time. Now the other gospels we got to peek into here for just a moment to kind of understand what, what has happened because from this week now it says that there we see Jesus in custody. But what we understand from reading the other gospels and kind of reading them in the chronolo- chronological order of that night we see a couple other things. In John chapter 18, we're not going to take the time there, but if you want to write down this passage and kind of see the building blocks for where Luke is at, John chapter 18, verse 12, it tells us that Jesus, was, when he was arrested, he was first taken to the house of Annas. Now, Annas was the former high priest. This is very interesting that they would take him to his house because he had really no authority. He was not in a position of power. He was not the current high priest. He had no real reason or ability to convict Jesus of anything or to enforce anything. So why would they take him there? Well, many commentators believe that he still had great influence amongst the Jewish people. And so they wanted to get him there. And and the purpose of that most likely was to just question Jesus. Because we see in John's account there in John chapter 18 that Annas asks him some questions. It basically starts to try to get Jesus to trip up on his words. Because again, if, if they could find a way for Jesus to incriminate himself, it gets the blood off their hands. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't bite. He doesn't fall for their tricks because he knows all things. And so they send him on there. To Caiaphas. So it starts in Annas' house, and then we, they have him go to Caiaphas's house, who is the current high priest, the son-in-law of Annas. We read about this in both Mark chapter 14 and in Matthew. And Caiaphas puts him on trial. He begins to ask him questions. And it says that they begin to bring false witnesses in to try to accuse Jesus of things that he had done that would be worthy of 
criminal offense and then ultimately death. But it says even these guys couldn't get their act together, that all the false witnesses they brought in and all the accusations they made against Jesus, they couldn't even get their stories on the same page. And it says at the end of the night, the false witnesses were found that their testimony was not true, did not line up. But Caiaphas, still trying to get Jesus, asked Jesus, we see in Mark 14, how do you respond to the testimony of these men? What's your defense? Jesus remains silent. And then he asks Jesus a very pointed question. I've had these moments where I've been in situations where the Holy Spirit has, has helped me with my mouth, and it's like I know I'm not supposed to say anything at this moment, you know? You can feel like your heart starts to beat a little bit heavier. Your chest gets a little tight. You want to say something, but you know because of God's grace and his sovereignty and the spirit actually working and you happen to be listening to it, don't talk right now. (laughs) And then you're just patient and you feel like Mount Vesuvius building on the inside of you. And then there's like another question or another statement and it's just like, I have to say something to this. And you're just hoping that's the spirit saying, go, release the dogs. And like, you're ready to go. Sometimes you realize it wasn't him. (laughs) I think this is a question that Jesus, this was a question he wanted to respond to. Tells us in Mark 14, Caiaphas asked Jesus if he was the Christ, the son of the blessed. And in verse 62, Jesus says, I am and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. This entire process of Annas and Caiaphas and the questioning and the accusations in the middle of the night was all illegal. And remember, the Jewish people had a a, a strong Jewish process and something uh, in, in a document called the Mishnah Sanhedrin, there were rules for how court proceedings should take place. And this entire process that we read about, both in the gospel accounts we just looked at, and Mark and John, and even here what we see in Luke being recorded, was all illegal. It was against the law. Let me share a few reasons how. It took place at night. That was illegal. It was in the high priest's home and not in the temple. That was against the rules. It was supposed to take place in the temple. He was tried without a defense. In a, in a criminal trial like this, that he was supposed to be given opportunities to present his side of it, not just respond to accusations, but actually present a defense. He was not given that. They made their verdict, which we just read, where they said he is deserving of death. They made that verdict in one day. That was against the rules. The law said that they were required to, to wait at least two days, possibly even three, to make a decision on a capital offense. It was on a day of a feast, which was against the law. They had a law that said if any of the testimony that was given was found to be untrue, then it basically canceled everything that could be said. It nullified all of the evidence. In fact, the rules said that if the false, if it was found out that you gave false testimony, whatever was intended for the person that you were trying to get caught, you would actually have to go and face that punishment yourself. 
The law said that the Sanhedrin could not originate the charges. The Sanhedrin was the equivalent of our Supreme Court. They didn't, they didn't find the charges. These were cases that would make their way to them because each town had its own Sanhedrin, its own little ruling uh, body of people. But then if it made it to Jerusalem Sanhedrin, that was the big one. And, and they couldn't originate charges. They were brought, charges were brought to them, cases that people were disagreeing on, and they would make the final ruling. But here we see they were the ones that brought these charges against Christ, and then they ruled on it. And they had this one, and this is a really unique rule. There was a rule that said that if they voted unanimously on a decision, then that decision was thrown out. It was a safeguard because if there was a unanimous vote, it was possibly evidence of a lack of mercy, number one, or conspiracy. So all these things that had happened were illegal. But again, they were in a hurry to get Jesus convicted by the Jewish leaders to give him over to Rome because the clock was ticking the Sabbath was coming, and they wanted Jesus done. So they placed him in custody with the plan to have another fake trial in the morning under the law that people could see or people could know or they could point to, hey, we did this in the morning, and then we handed him over to Rome. It was all going to be a sham, but they put him in custody till the morning where they could officially charge him with this. And that's where we pick up our story today in Luke chapter 63. It says, now the men in verse 63 were holding Jesus in custody, were mocking him and beating him. And so what we see here is that we see this first part of of Jesus being rejected by his own, rejected by his own people. The guards here had a duty to protect Jesus while in custody, but they rejected it. What What was the role of these guards? They were not given, they were not given the charge to punish Jesus. Again, he had not officially been convicted of anything. They were supposed to be holding him. The role of a guard in this culture was to keep people safe from that. But they knew his fate was sealed, and they showed him no respect. Luke says here that they began to beat him and mock him. The other gospel accounts tell us that they, it, part of that was slapping and spitting on him. Luke tells us that they were blaspheming, which means they were defaming his name. They were They knew that he was called a prophet. They knew of his reputation, but they were making fun of it like, you're not. Look who's in charge here. If you're that person, prove it. They thought they had the upper hand, but actually, as we've seen so many times as we've read through this story, and this actually helps pull us out of the, the feeling that you might be feeling right now, like this is not right, that they're doing this to Jesus, is that each step along the way, he is fulfilling prophecy. Last week with Peter, right, he predicted, Peter, you're going to deny me before the morning. Sure enough, fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus had predicted earlier, Luke chapter 18, verses 32 and 33, that he was going to be beaten and mocked. He was going to be treated this way. And sure enough, within a day, fulfilled. It's also fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 53 tells us that surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And so the guards had a responsibility to protect him until he had actually been convicted legally, but they rejected it. They beat him, they mocked him, they slapped him, they spit on him. Then the next thing we see is that the Jews had strict laws for handling the handling of the accused, but the Sanhedrin rejected them. 
Verse 66 says, when it was day, so now we can actually try to have this legally, but we know that their decision had already been made illegally. The council of elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes. That's why we know this is the Sanhedrin. All of them had come together. Many of them potentially were part of these trials in the middle of the night. But now we know that they've called the entire Sanhedrin together, all the elders, all the council, all of them. And it says they led him away into the council chamber and they began to question him one last time. Verse 67 says, if you are the Christ, tell us. Again, this is their last chance to try to get Jesus to trip up on his words in a way that he could be guilty under Rome. Because the Christ, the word Christ literally means king or Messiah, savior. And so if they could prove that Jesus claimed to be the, the, the king, that he was going to maybe be someone that was going to try to lead a revolt and they could hand him over to Rome and let Rome deal with him. But we know that they were not seeking justice. They were not asking to really be informed. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were calloused. And their deception was the evidence of their wickedness. And so they had these rules, but they threw them out. And we see here that the words and works of Jesus were clear evidence of his deity, but the religious elite rejected him. Everything they asked Jesus to prove, he'd already proven. They knew it. Everything that would be evidence that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, predicted in the Old Testament, he had done. In fact, when he was being questioned by Annas, he, he tells him, in John, we see him say, everything that I've spoken, everything that I've done, I did it in the open. There was, it was easy for you to see. Why are you asking me these questions? Decide for yourself. Are you the Christ? But Jesus' words here, when he says, I'm, I'm not, if I tell you, you won't believe, and if I ask you a question, you won't answer, what Jesus is saying is your mind's already made up. I know the game you're playing. This is a sham. And then he makes this statement in verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This was a significant statement. In some of your Bibles, you might notice that that statement, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, might be in all capital letters or italicized. It's indicating that this is, he's speaking and pointing back to prophecy. That in the Old Testament, we see in Daniel chapter 7 and uh, Psalm 110, we see this, this declaration that the Son of Man, that the one that's going to come and assume the throne of Israel and is going to reign forever. Jesus here is speaking to the fact that this is one of the names he loved to call himself because it expressed that he was fully man, which was essential to his qualifications of being our sufficient sacrifice. But it also speaks to his deity because the Son of Man, the one who would reign forever and to judge, had to be God. And so knowing this, as he says this, they ask him that follow-up question, and it says, then are you the Son of God? Some of our translations will say, Jesus here saying, yes, I am. Many of the translations also have uh, articulated the Greek here, Jesus saying something like this, you say that I am. Some people might even say that, well, see, Jesus isn't actually saying that he's God. Some false religions use this as an evidence to try to prove that Jesus wasn't really Christ. He wasn't really the Messiah. But this is a figure of speech. Jesus, like, he's basically saying to them, you say that I am. You, you know it's evident to you. You're the one asking me these questions. You're the one bringing up, am I the Christ? Am I the Son of God? You know this to be true. And if I tell you, and if I try to even explain this more fully, because you don't even have the full knowledge of what you're saying, you're not going to listen to it. 
We, we know that they accept this as an affirmation that he said was saying yes, because what does it say there? How they responded. What further need do we have of testimony? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. He just said he's God. He just says he's going to be the one that is going to judge. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Luke, says this, It's amazing to see the recklessness and the relentlessness of these Christ-haters. Nothing can deter them from their goal. Nothing can exterminate their hatred. And it is shown in their injustice and in their abuse. Miracles of power, miracles of judgment that should have filled their hearts with fear and reverence find no responsive cord anywhere. The terrifying power that threw them all to the ground when he first came into the garden that very night with the force of a hammer from heaven couldn't convince their hard hearts of the reality of his deity and lordship. Their rejection was not based on a lack of evidence. No, it was based on an unbelieving heart. To see truth and deny it. So how does a heart become like this? I want to make just a few observations in our, in our closing time because I think there's a lesson for us to learn tonight. And let's, again, let's not take our eyes off Jesus because as he went through all of these things, he did it for you. He did it for me. And not for one second was he ever out of control. Never for one second did the enemy have an upper hand. But how does a heart become so calloused? How does it become Deluded. The, the idea of delusion means that you have an unwavering false belief in light of overwhelming evidence that you're wrong. You hold to it. How does a heart get to that spot? Is there a potential for you and for me who believe in Christ to become unbelieving in our hearts? I think the sinful man or the sinful woman, believes two things about themselves. The first is this. We think we have intellectual sovereignty. And because we believe we have intellectual sovereignty, we place the burden of proof ahead of obedience to God. The sinful man, the person that's apart from God, the person that rejects the truth of God and exchanges it for a lie, believes that they are intellectually superior to God. They know what's best for themselves. And if I'm going to obey you, God, you've got to prove it to me that what you're saying is actually true. God, I ask you to prove it before I do it. Sometimes we ask God for overwhelming evidence to prevent us from doing what we want to do. God, if you don't want me to do this thing, send a bolt of lightning down right now. Make it obvious. Or we might say things like, God, I want you to convince me that what you want me to do is going to be better than what I'm holding on to right now so that I'll lay it down. This was the Sanhedrin. They were proud. They were selfish. They hated Jesus because of his teaching but they hated him more because he threatened their security. He threatened their life, their livelihood. This is also seen in the heart and words of unbelieving men when they try to lift up science as the true test of what is true. And they claim that anybody who doesn't believe in science, or if you can't prove it scientifically, you are the one 
that is wrong. And now the burden of proof is convince me how your faith or how your Christianity is greater than science. They claim Christianity is illogical and they reveal a second false view that resides in their hearts, authority. The sinful man believes not only that he's intellectually sovereign, that he is higher than God, but he believes that he is the one in authority, that he will be the one that judges right and wrong, truth and falseness. The Jewish leadership thought they were putting Jesus on trial. They failed to realize that he was the true judge. That's what he's saying here. You might think that you're putting me on trial, but just know that I'm going to be the one at the end that you have to answer to. But the person who's in authority, the calloused, unbelieving heart says, make your case and then I will determine whether or not I believe it and and accept it. What's their rubric? What's their guidelines? The sinful heart says, well, if it works for me, then I might accept it. If it fits with my experiences, then it, it possibly is true. And if it allows me to do what I want, then there's a possibility that I might agree with you. The deluded heart, the unbelieving heart that's represented in these men, they were the ones charged with knowing what the word of God said and would be able to identify the coming of the Messiah. They had seen the evidence that God had made it plain to them through Christ's words and works for those years in ministry, and yet they saw it and they did not want to give up what they had achieved or what they had gotten a hold of here on earth they refused to believe it they thought they were intellectually sovereign they continued to try to use their words to trick jesus they tried to continue to put him in traps they continued to try to accuse him of things that weren't true they acted as if they were the ones that were going to determine whether or not jesus was truly the son of god rather than going no you need to accept or not accept the burden of proof was on jesus rather than the burden of proof to whether you believe is on you I think some of us this morning might be suffering from a deluded heart. It's hard, it's calloused, it's been deceived. But the truth is this, that God is continuing to speak to hard hearts. He is continuing to take dead hearts and bring them back to life through the truth of the gospel. Amen? He is continuing to use his spirit to poke and to convict hard hearts. And he's calling and saying, let go of that. Lay down this intellectual sovereignty. Lay down this false idea that you are an authority and trust me. Follow me. This morning, if you are here and you're not believing, you've never believed that Jesus died for your sins, if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God that came down and loved you so much that he was willing to pay for your sins and now offers you the benefit of salvation freely, if you've had an experience in your religion, your religious past that makes you kind of hesitant to believe anything that the church says or the Bible says, but this morning you can sense through God's word that his spirit is poking you and saying, would you stop being hard? Would you let me make your heart alive again? Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, today, if you are hearing his voice, do not harden your heart. He says that if you will be obedient and you will surrender that and you will say, 
I'm going to stop thinking that I'm the one that knows everything and I'm the authority. He says, I will let you have rest. Do you know how uneasy and how tiring it is to try to have the answers all the time and to always be right and try to have all, everything planned out? We think that's power. We think that's what we want, autonomy. That is not fun. It's hard. And he says, if you will lay that down, I will give you rest. If you're here this morning and you have not believed, but the voice of God is poking your dead heart and it says, I want to make that alive. All that you need to do is say, I, I don't know everything I, about this, but I know this is real. And Lord, I believe. Would you help me understand you more? I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins, be buried and rise again. But I want to speak in the final moments. And I know I'm just over, but I want you to hear this. Because I believe there's a lot of us in here who, salvation is not the issue, but there is this constant fight inside of us dealing with an unbelieving heart. That there are parts of our lives, parts of our belief where we're like, I just am not, I'm fighting God on this. I think I know better than him in this. I want to have control of this. And we're fighting him. What we're really doing is rejecting him for something else. The scriptures are full of example of God's people struggling with unbelief and putting God to the test. And in that same passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, it tells this message to believers. It reminds us that the people of Israel did not listen to God. They had seen him do miraculous things. He led them out of Egypt. But it says they continued to try and test God. They questioned him. They questioned his plan. They questioned his love. They questioned his ability to deliver on his word. And they did not enter into God's rest. And then the author of Hebrews says this, Take care, brethren, believer, that you are not in you an unbelieving evil heart that falls away from the living God. The potential is in us for us to start to fight God for authority, to not believe him fully, to not take him at his word, and to say, I reject that. Prove it to me. I'm placing the burden on you, God, to prove it to me once and again that I should listen to you and that I should obey. And he says, pray today that in you, brothers, believer, that there would not start to creep in an evil, unbelieving heart but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the prayer for us this morning. I'm going to plead with you that if there's something in your heart where you are rejecting God, you're saying, I know better than God. I'm intellectually sovereign to him. I'm the one that's in authority. I will determine if this is right or wrong, that you would say, enough. And that you would say, I don't want that evil, unbelieving heart coming in and hardening and callous, making my heart calloused. I want to reject that, and I want to accept him. Lord, help me to obey you this morning. Help me to trust you. Jesus makes a statement here in verse 71 where he says, or, or excuse me, where the, where the men say, after they hear Jesus affirm that he is the Son of God, they say, what testimony do we need? We've heard it with his own mouth. They had no idea that they stated a great question. What more evidence do we need? He stated it with his own mouth. Believer, a lack of belief is not from a lack of evidence. What further testimony do you need? Let's pray.
Father God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you for Jesus and his willingness to endure such hostility. He did it for you. He did it for me. He, he, I thank you that he, he loved us so much that even in the midst of the mocking and the beating and these, these ridiculous questions, he stayed the course. He was faithful. And Father God, we are thankful for the gift of salvation. And I just pray that as we walk away that we would consider our hearts this morning. Father God, we don't want unbelief to creep in. And, and if, there, if we are living in unbelief, I pray that we would respond to your voice. And if you are calling us, that we would say, yes, well, I trust in Jesus. I believe in the gospel that he died, was buried, and rose again for my sins. And I want newness of life. Change my dead heart and make it alive again. But Father God, if we are here this morning and we are struggling with unbelief in any area here, I pray that we would learn from the failure of these men and that we would not follow them down that path, but that we would lay that down and enter into your rest through obedience. Thank you for being a loving God that we can trust. We pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen.